Good morning. Thank you for uh, being here. Welcome. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Uh, my name is John. We're making our way as a church family through Mark's gospel. We're in Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're beginning at verse 1. It's good to see so many little theologians here. I have been thinking long and hard about what to ask you to draw. I don't like that about myself in a sense that I should be thinking about the sermon, and yet I just, just wonder, what am I going to say to the little theologians? What are you going to draw for this sermon? But I think I have something, and it's a reference to the conclusion of the sermon. So little theologians, if it's okay with mom and dad, if you guys could work on a picture of what it looks like for an animal to be returned to the wild. Does that make sense to you? When I was a little kid, I would watch animal shows. They would rescue an animal from some problem, you know, a bird shot in the wing with an arrow, and they would nurse the bird to health, and they would take the bird, and it would be a big event to let the bird out into the wild. I'm from Alaska, and uh, beluga whales would get caught in, uh, in tides, and uh, there would be uh, people who gather on the beach, and I don't know what you do. You, you can't push a whale, but you throw water on it until the tide comes. So um, I guess I don't like animals enough, but you know the picture, right? Releasing an animal back into the wild. At the very end of our sermon, I want to ask us, what does it look like for human beings to be released into the wild? Isn't that a funny picture? Don't draw that. Draw an animal. But that's where we're going with the sermon. Does the Bible say anything about how human beings function in the wild? Well, That's at the conclusion. But our passage is from Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Would you please join with me in prayer, and then we'll look at this passage. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, may uh, the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. We thank you for doing this by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, And you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is the word of our Lord. 
Well, I want to put in our minds this morning the uh, imagery of being close to God. We looked at that in our last passage. Remember, uh, Jesus, uh, he is close to his disciples, actually climbs into the boat to be with them. Simon Chester is an author and a historian, and he's uh, written a book called The Perfectionists. It's really a history of precision engineering. It's a fascinating book, especially for someone like me, who is an English major. But Simon Winchester uh, tells a story when he's a little boy, and his dad uh, came home for dinner with a wooden box. Remember, it's a, it's a history of engineering, and uh, Simon Winchester's dad is an engineer. His dad help, comes home for dinner one day after work, and he has this little box, it's a wooden box with a hinge on it. He opens it up, and inside the box is uh, a velvet lining with a whole bunch of little pieces of metal. About 30, I think Simon says. And to Simon's little boy, it was extremely enticing. His dad reaches in the box, grabs two of those little slivers of metal, about the thickness of a stick of gum, and puts one in each of Simon's hands. And they feel heavy. They're shiny. They're both the same size. And Simon delights in these two pieces of metal. He delights in the box that his dad says he can't touch. Well, his dad then takes those two metal pieces and he puts them together and he sets them on the table. And Simon, looking at him, looks like one piece of metal, stacks them on top of each other. And his dad says, okay, now just grab the top one. And he can't. It's, it's like permanently bonded to the bottom one. In fact, his dad lets him pick them up, and, and he, he's holding these two, and he cannot separate them. It is like they're magnetized, or they're glued together, bonded together. Now, those of you who are engineers, so I'd never heard of these before, but those of you who are engineers probably know exactly what this. These are called gauge blocks. They're very small pieces of metal that are precisely measured such that you can stack them together and you can get a, a, a perfect measurement between two points. And obviously they're so important be, is because they're so thin, uh, even down to one one-hundredth of a millimeter. Very, very thin. Now, I think that's pretty cool, but Simon Winchester thinks more about it. Simon Winchester tells us that uh, these uh, gauge blocks were uh, actually impossible before 1901. And in 1901, uh, a man by the name of Carl Edward Johansson, Swedish inventor, he actually made the first set of gauge blocks, and that's why they're called Joe blocks. Because I guess Johansson blocks too many syllables. But Carl Edvard Johansson, he did something. He figured out how to make a piece of metal perfectly flat. Well, that's easy. But it's not easy to make two pieces of metal, each of them perfectly flat, so that they can go together and there's, there's no a vacuum in between of them because of uh, matching uh, concavities. Uh, there's, there's no wobbling because of uh, mat matching, um, uh, what's the other one, convexities? Is that a word? They're perfectly flat, and you can stack them together. And when you stack them together, it, it's, it, the, the molecules are so tightly aligned that you can't separate them unless you do this. You have to slide them apart. I think this is fascinating. It's fascinating because it was so hard to uh, make a material perfectly flat and then do it twice so that you could put them together, and they bond as tight as glue, but without glue. 
And this passage is very much about that kind of closeness to God, the kind of closeness that is permanent, bound together, can't be separated. Because what this passage is telling us is that, is that it is impossible for us to make ourselves bondable to God. Well, I think there's perhaps a more eloquent way to put that. It's impossible for us to uh, make ourselves presentable to God in such a way that we're united to him forever. We can't do it. It's impossible. And in fact, what the Bible tells us is that acknowledging that is really what reveals our need for Jesus. Acknowledging that it is impossible for us to make ourselves presentable to God, boy, that's, that's the secret of the gospel. Because when you acknowledge that, then you see your need for Jesus and you see what he has done at his cross. And the passage actually breaks up into a few parts. It builds. You're catching this with Mark, right? Mark always tells these stories, and these stories they build. They have a beginning and a middle and an end. And the beginning is like a setup here. Mark is giving his original audience and us a sense of the details. He's setting us up. And then in the middle of the passage, there is this charge that the Pharisees make of Jesus. And at the very end, there's Jesus's uh, response, but also his application for us. And so the first four verses are really a, a setup. Mark tells us that the Pharisees had gathered to him with some of the scribes. So there's a body of individuals in verse 1. But they also, they come up from Jerusalem, right? So they have some notoriety. You see, to be, to be a Pharisee is really a, a choice. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that you could do because it's a way of life. It's not actually a vocation. You don't go to college to become a Pharisee. A Pharisee, it's a way of life. But a scribe, you go, go to college to be a scribe. That's actually a profession. These are lawyers. These are individuals who are interpreters and appliers of the law. And so you have uh, a, a Pharisee, some of whom would be scribes, and you have uh, these uh, scribes, uh, not all of them uh, would perhaps be called a Pharisee, but they would all have that way of life. But you have scribes and Pharisees, professionals and non-professionals, and they come together to challenge Jesus. And in Mark's gospel... There's this setting uh, in which uh, we begin to see the Pharisees already plotting against Jesus. So here we are in chapter 7. But Mark has told us all the way back in chapter 3 that these Pharisees are already beginning to hold counsel together. They have been making a case. And their desire, Mark 3 verse 6, is this. Destroy the man. Destroy Jesus. And Mark, he's told us that in Mark chapter 3, but he's, he's left us to watch that build up from chapter 3 to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, we begin to see how they're going to do that. They hate Jesus. Those who are professionals and those who have just made uh, the law a way of life. Why would they hate Jesus? Well, don't answer too quickly. Instead, consider what Mark has told us thus far. Looking back in Mark's gospel, what has he told us so far about the hatred that the Pharisees have for Jesus and the hatred the scribes have for Jesus? And the first thing Mark tells us, very, very early on in his gospel, chapter 1 and chapter 2, 
Mark tells us that they hate Jesus because Jesus, he claimed to be God. In other Gospels, we don't learn that as early. But in Mark's Gospel, he just tells us uh, very, very early that they actually hate him because he, well, he claims to be God. He forgives sin. He teaches with an authority that is not like the authority of the scribes. That's the first reason. The second reason they hate him is because he spends time with sinners. That's very clear in Mark chapter 2. They hate him because he claims to be God. They hate him because he uh, spends a lot of time with sinners. And it's not until really the third uh, reason, uh, uh, third one in Mark's gospel, uh, that we begin to see that he hates G- they hate Jesus because he's not conforming to the law. It has to do with the Sabbath and the fasts. But really, it's he claims to be God, he hangs out with bad people, sinners, and he doesn't honor the fasts and the Sabbath days. And really, those are the three top reasons why they hate Jesus. Now, over time, we're going to see more and more about their hatred of Jesus. And so I want to add just two more. These are more developed in Matthew and Luke, less developed in Mark. So you have the top three. They're closely followed by these two. One of the reasons they hate Jesus is because Jesus has tons of influence with people and they're jealous. Crowds all around Jesus. They're not all around the Pharisees. And so number four is that they have this enormous influence with people and the Pharisees are jealous. And the fifth reason is this. Jesus, by all accounts, is a very good person. He's just a good person. I mean, the the, the charges, they seem to slip off of him like Teflon. He's a good person. He's humble. He's sincere. He's compassionate. He's others-oriented. That's the fifth reason they hate him. Now, you might think, you know, how do you tie up all of those reasons for hatred and turn that into the destruction of him? And I believe what we find in Mark chapter 7 is we find kind of the gateway or the doorway. This, this is the door that they're going to kind of lead Jesus through in order to slaughter him on the other side. And it's remarkable that the doorway is, well, it's so easy to understand Verse 2, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. I mean, just take take verse 2 at face value. It's so simple. Like, I, I didn't live during that time period. I'm not a scholar of ancient Middle Eastern culture. But, I, you know, I get that. And you get it as well. And even if it's just a few of his disciples, it's not even all of his disciples that uh, need to be indicted. It could be just a few disciples. And these few disciples, they see, well, they're eating with their hands that are defiled. They're not washing their hands. It's so simple. And that's going to be the doorway that they'll lead Jesus through in order to slaughter him. Now, you get to see a little bit of, of, uh, of Mark's care for his audience in this passage, and I want, I want to draw your attention to this. Verses 3 and 4, you can actually put around parentheses. It's almost like verses 3 through 4, it's Mark. He, like, comes into the gospel, and he's explaining to his audience what this means. But verse 2, I, I'm, I'm not a Jew, and I get verse 2, but Mark wants to be very sure that all of us understand what is happening here. 
you know, Mark is writing in Rome. And, and probably the first audience of his letter are uh, Roman believers. There would be a high number of Gentiles. But scholars are very convinced that Mark is writing for a largely Gentile audience. And so we have this parenthetical statement in verses 3 and 4 so that Mark can say a couple of things about how serious this is. It's almost like he's saying, okay, you get verse 2, but, th- but there's more to see here. He says that what I've just said to you in verse 2, he says in verse 3, it's actually, it's actually pretty universal. All the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. It's like, a, it's like a big deal. It's like Mark entering into the script and saying, by the way, this is a big deal. It's universal. And he also says in verse 3 that it's a technical thing. You might think it's just washing your hands, but it's pretty technical. You know, living in a pandemic... Uh, I don't know if you've seen signs of how to wash your hands. And on the one hand, I appreciate it, but on the other hand, I laugh. I've been washing my hands since I was a boy. I don't need help here. But look at verse 3. It's not just a matter of washing hands, Mark, Mark uh, injects. Uh, he says that they have to wash their hands properly. That word for properly, it may be some technical detail about the washing. But look at verse 4. The word for wash is the word for baptize. He's like injecting some religious language here. So he's saying, you Roman Christians, this is universal. All all Jews get this. And it's very, very technical. And he also says it's expected. It's expected of you, as if you were a Jew, to hold to the tradition of the elders. That holding, that's expected. And not only this, Mark says, again, all of this in his parenthetical statement, universal, technical, it's expected, but it's also protective. Notice how he says in verse 3 that it's meant for when you come out of the marketplace. You see, Jews go to the marketplace, and the marketplace is crowded. You bump into people, brush up against someone. It's so important for you that when you come out of that marketplace, from all of that bumping and brushing, that you wash your hands. It's protective. It keeps them safe against Gentiles, who would be the audience of Mark's gospel. And it's also uh, introductory because he says in verse 4 that there are many other traditions that they observe. And, and, and really what's happening in verses 3 and 4, Mark is saying, okay, I get you, you think you understand verse 2. It's important to wash your hands, but you don't really get it. It's universal, applies to every Jew. It's technical. There's a way you got to do it that's right. It's expected that you would hold to these traditions. It's protective against the onslaught of Gentile um, intrusion, and it is introductory. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm just not going to go into right now. We need to take this to heart. There's more that's going on here. And Mark, he's turning up the volume on verse 2. And and really what Mark is saying is he's saying that the Pharisees and the scribes, they look at Jesus and they look at his disciples and they say that they have failed the Pharisee test. Even though verse 2 sounds so simple, they still failed. You see, washing is a very easy example. But the unwritten oral tradition was intense. There's a lot of focus on that washing. Now, here's really what we need to understand if we want to understand as the original audience would understand. Jesus' disciples, at least some of them, failed that Pharisee test. And Jesus himself is being wrapped up into this such that he failed the Pharisee test as well. 
And then Mark is describing it in such a way that we begin to think that in the original setting, during Jesus' time, it wouldn't be just a few disciples in Jesus, it would actually be quite a large number of people who had failed the Pharisee test. But that also included Mark's original audience. Roman Christians who were reading this for the first time, they too would fail the Pharisee test. And it extends to you and I. We also fail that Pharisee test. Now, they're about to make a charge. And the charge begins, I think, in verse 5. It, it could be a verse later. Jesus says, or, or, the, or Mark tells us this. He says, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus a question. And they're asking with one voice. It's an official question. And what's interesting is that the question is not about just this one occasion. I saw you before lunch, you forgot to wash your hands. The question has to do with not just one event, but walking according to. Look at verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? It's not a one-time thing. It's something that tells the Pharisees and the scribes a bit about what they believe is the heart of the disciples and consequently the heart of Jesus. The charge is about walking. Now, it would be a pretty good time right now to just talk a little bit about what's really happening in this washing. You've gotten the point, haven't you, that the washing is not about hygiene. It's about well, it's about cleanness. It's not about hygiene and, and, and washing off diseases and being a healthy person. It's about the kind of relationship that you hope to have with God. In the minds of the Pharisee, that's what the washing is about. When he says in verse, or when they say in verse 5 that uh, there is eating with defiled hands, it's not dirty hands, it's unclean hands, it's impure hands, it's hands that are not fit for God, and it also means it's an unclean heart, and an impure heart, and a heart not fit for God. The charge is not about hygiene, the charge is about the relationship that they have with God. To be unclean is to have some boundary between you and God. One scholar says that the Jew, uh, Jewish uh, uh, tradition at the time was so occupied about this that 25% of all of the laws had to do with purity before God, removing some kind of boundary so that you could have this tight relationship with God and you have the power to remove that boundary and yet Jesus' disciples are not doing that. And really, the charge that they're making to Jesus is Jesus, your disciples, they actually don't want to be close to God. And Jesus, what you're allowing is you're allowing them to live with this boundary between them and God. You're giving them permission to be unclean. And if they're unclean, they'll never be close to God. Now, that's quite a development, isn't it, from verse 2? But that's what verse 2 means. And if you don't understand this, that this is really what the charge is about, the charge is not about compliance. The charge is about relationship. Relationship. 
And if you don't understand that, then Jesus' response is going to throw you off. Because Jesus' response begins not with a quote, but with a definition of what that quote means. Look at verse 6. Jesus is going to quote Isaiah 29, no doubt about it. But before Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 6, what does he do? He actually calls them a word. He calls them hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? And the word hypocrite doesn't even show up in Isaiah chapter 29. This is Jesus summarizing Isaiah 29, and he's just, he's calling it out. He's actually giving them the idea of the passage before he presents the idea itself. I think there's an implication there for preaching, but that's me. You're hypocrites. That's what you are. A a hypocrite is someone who's two-faced. It's uh, someone who says one thing, but they mean something else. They strive to be pure, to be close to God, but really what they're doing is they're running away from God. It looks like being close to God, but it's the exact opposite. Two faces. You love the tradition, and you love the habit, but you don't love the objective of the tradition and the habit. That's God himself who desires to come close to you. And then Jesus goes to Isaiah 29, and he says, look, you honor God with your lips, but not with your hearts. Honor him with your lips, but your hearts are actually far from him. That's who you are. But you wonder how that can happen? I mean, scribes, they actually seek education and study to uh, receive their livelihood by being uh, appliers and interpreters of the law. I mean, they work hard for that. And Pharisees, I mean, these are individuals who have dedicated their lives in order to be close to God. How could it happen that both the scribes and the Pharisees end up with the result of hypocrisy? Do you have a relationship with anyone that's all about compliance and not about intimacy? You do. I'll help you get there. But a relationship can actually be maintained through mere compliance. You hit the check boxes, and they hit the check boxes. It has nothing to do with intimacy and closeness. It has everything to do with compliance. Do you know people like that? Do you have relationships like that? You actually do. Let's say, for instance, you're a part of a homeowner's association. In a homeowner's association, what are you doing? You're hitting the checkboxes, right? So I, you know, I obey the rules, and uh, you do the things you promised. And it works really well. This is how utility bills get paid. You provide this. I write you a check. It's a real happy relationship. It's not intimate, but it doesn't have to be. It's great. But some of us... We take relationships that ought to be intimate, and we turn them into just a set of checkboxes. And I kind of want to see your checkboxes. I'll show you. Uh, I'll show you my checkboxes, and we'll get along quite well. Some of our friendships are like this. Some of our marriages are like this. But we're not meant to interact with people the way we interact with machines. We comply with machines. We interact with people. That's the charge that Jesus is making. They want to have the kind of relationship with God, these scribes and Pharisees, that they ought to have with the president of their homeowners association. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer. You need to take heart of this. 
that uh, statistics show that uh, people don't believe in G- who don't believe in Jesus, they still believe in some kind of afterlife, some kind of a God. And if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm sure that you do. Some kind of afterlife, some kind of God. And not only do you believe in some kind of afterlife and some kind of God, you believe that there are some people on the planet who actually don't have a good afterlife or they don't have a good connection with whatever that some kind of God is that you fashioned in your head. This is true for every human being. You don't have to profess Jesus. By far, statistics say that people who refuse to believe in Jesus, they'll still pray and have some kind of view of the afterlife. And those people will have a view towards others, uh, those who are so bad that they actually don't get the good afterlife or the good divine relationship. Why? They lack the compliance. You believe you have something good and special, you don't need Jesus, and you judge others because there are others that are far worse than you, and they don't have things as good and special as you have them. That's a relationship of compliances. You've created a checklist, and you've weighed other people based on that checklist. Everyone does that. And you need to hear that if you're not a believer. I'm going to say it again at the end of the sermon. But for believers, we need to understand this too because we turn our relationship with God into a checklist. I don't want to know him and be known by him. I want to keep him happy. I want to placate him by my obedience. Now, my brother and my sister, you're not going to say it that way. I get that. I wouldn't say it that way. But we act like that. And the application is here at the very end. Jesus, he says this, he says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he gives an example in verse 11 of the kind of relationship that many Pharisees have with their parents. God says in the fifth commandment to honor your mother and your father. But a Pharisee could actually enter into a vow and the vow would be setting aside their wealth for the temple. But they would get to use the wealth in the present, but when they die, the wealth goes to the temple. This is uh, almost like it's estate planning. It's charitable giving. You write a charitable institution in your will. You uh, use those assets while you're alive, but when you die, those assets, they go to the charitable institution. It's not a big deal. But the Pharisees, uh, they would enter into a vow They would live their life according to policies because the things that they have, they don't actually own. When they die, they're going to go to the temple. And there's penalties associated with this. Korban means an offering. And if you uh, call your property Korban and you try to get out of it, well, there's penalties you have to pay. You actually performed a vow and you agreed to a set of policies and there are penalties if you back out. Now, the problem with this, according to Jesus, is that the Pharisees were not taking care of mom and dad. They're tying up their assets in such a way that when they die, if they can't have their assets, mom and dad can't either. The problem is that it leads to a conflict with the law. Now, Jesus, he just calls this out. But the Pharisees have thought about this, and the scribes have thought about this. But many in Jesus' audience might not. And Jesus, he pits their law against God's law. And in fact, what they find is that God's law doesn't have those kinds of vows and policies and penalties. That God's law, well, it's actually 
It's actually more liberal even than the oral tradition of the Pharisees. Let's think about that. You've created a law that's even tighter than God's law. And you think if you meet that law, you also meet God's law. And Jesus says, when you meet your law, you actually don't meet God's law. This is, this is the image that I'm bringing you to. What do you think it's like when an animal uh, has been uh, caged up and then it's released into the wild? And it goes off and it does things that perhaps it's never done before because it was raised in captivity. But what do you think human beings do? When you release a human being into the wild, do you know what they do? They create these traditions. It's what they do. They make these little laws, these little rules. Uh, I'm going to find peace and happiness by following these rules. I'm going to expect other people to find peace and happiness by following these rules. It's what human beings do. And it happened in Genesis 11. The people, they go out to the east And what do they do? They come together and they say, come, let's make bricks and let's burn them thoroughly. And they make bricks and they burn them thoroughly. And they say, come, let's build for us a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And they do that. They put the bricks together and they make a tower with its top into the heaven. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you still seek happiness, don't you? And you still seek peace. And you still seek wholeness. And you still seek health. You, you, you do that by yourself. And if you don't have Jesus, you're in Genesis 11. You're getting together with people who think like you, follow the same principles as you do. You work with them that you can build something great. And you begin to build for yourself answers to questions like, what happens in the afterlife? And is there a God? You build this for yourself, and you surround yourself with others who do the same thing. But what Jesus is telling you is that it is impossible to make yourself presentable to God. You cannot do it. It will always be a failure. The only way that you can come close to God is through the new covenant of Jesus Christ, through believing in him. And in belief in Jesus Christ, he is the one who brings you peace and happiness and fulfillment. He is the one who unites you to God. This is what the gospel does. You need to hear that you spend your whole lives trying to make yourself boundary free so that all of your hopes and dreams come true. And the Bible tells you, and Jesus tells you, it's It's a lie. Only Jesus can unite you to God and bring you to peace and happiness and fulfillment. Your money can't do that. Your status can't do that. Your desires can't do that. Your identity can't do that. He flattens you. No concavities, no convexities that you might be united to God. It's impossible to make ourselves presentable to God, but acknowledging this is what reveals our need for the power of Jesus in the gospel. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for uniting yourself to us in Christ Jesus, our Savior. For those who are believers, would you forgive us for seeking a mechanistic relationship with you?
for those who are not believers, would you draw them to yourself that they might have true and everlasting peace and happiness? In Jesus' name, amen.